If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 25. We're going to be looking at verses 27 to 34 this morning. As we talk about the bartered birthright, <clears throat> in 2012, a 19-year-old man from Washington State named Dakota Guerin was charged with stealing a rare coin collection worth at least $100,000. <clears> After Guerin had completed some part-time work for a woman living north of Portland, the woman reported that her family coin collection was missing. Her collection included a variety of rare and valuable coins, including Liberty Headquarters and Morgan Dollars, and other coins dating back to the early 1800s. <clears throat> Initially, Garen denied any involvement, claiming that the police didn't have any evidence against him, but then he started spending the coins at face value, apparently unaware of the coin's worth. He and his girlfriend paid for movie tickets using quarters worth between $5 and $68. Later on, the same day, they bought some local pizza with rare coins, including a Liberty Quarter that may be worth up to $18,500. <laughs> The news article reported, Garen has been charged with first-degree theft and is being held in jail on $40,000 bond, which technically is an amount he could easily afford if the valuable coin collection were actually his. Oh, it's funny, isn't it? You don't have any idea how valuable certain things are. When I was right out of college, we lived in South Florida, and I worked for a bank, and I was a teller in a bank, and from time to time, people would come in, and they would, uh, you know, they would give you money to deposit into their account and different things like that. And there were times where there were coins and bills that would come in and they didn't realize, I guess, what it was that they had. <clears throat> and so uh, we would always ask, as tellers in the bank, we would always ask the manager, can we just switch out, like, you know, currency for what came into our drawer? And they would say yes. And so I have some coins, different coins, that uh, they're not super valuable. So... <laughs> That's why they didn't, the manager didn't mind doing that. But it's just different coins that you don't normally see that aren't in circulation today anymore. And I have some uh, bills that uh, really, I guess, aren't in circulation anymore. I have a 1935 $1 bill that says silver certificate on the top. That's pretty cool. It's just unique. It's not worth much. But I also have a $10 bill that's in rough shape. It has tape down the middle, and it's larger than a normal $10 bill today that you see, but it was currency back a long time ago, and so I traded a current $10 bill for that one as well. But it's just neat to see those things and see what it used to look like. And so a lot of people just weren't uh, aware of, of the value of those or, or the uniqueness of those perhaps <clears throat> as well. So... Um, sometimes we just, we don't realize the value of things until they're gone, right? So uh, I'm in college at this point, and uh, uh, rooming in the dorm on the same floor with a couple of uh, twin brothers, and, and uh, they had original Nintendo system, an original Nintendo Entertainment Center. And uh, it was used, but I bought it from them with all the games that they owned, and I didn't pay very much for it. And then over the years, I would go to Blockbuster Video. Does anybody remember Blockbuster Video? Yeah. <clears throat> I would go and buy used games from Blockbuster Video for, I don't know, five to ten bucks a piece, not very much. And uh, I had uh, accumulated a pretty large uh, uh, collection of, of games. And so um, we were living in Missouri, I think, at the time, and, and Wade's in the video games. Our oldest is really much into video games, and so he was keeping uh, up to date with what was going on with Nintendo and the new systems they were coming out with, and they were coming out with a Nintendo Wii. 
and uh, they were staying with the Nintendo Wii that you will be able to download all the games from all of the previous systems. So the Nintendo Entertainment Center, the Super Nintendo, the Nintendo 64, all of those ones previous to the Wii. So I was like, well, there's no point in hanging on to all these games in this, this game system because I'm going to be able to download all these games on the Wii. So I sold my original Nintendo system with all of its games for 20 bucks at a garage sale in, in Missouri. Wade's not happy with me about that. Hasn't been happy with me for years. Because what he's tried to do is uh, put my whole collection back together in his collection. And there's some games that... Um, Nintendo, I think, oversold the capabilities of the Wii. Because once he bought his and we started looking at what was available to download, some of the games I had were not available to download. So he'd gotten rid of these games. And and so Wade's been, uh, like I said, been upset. So he's been trying to rebuild my whole, you know, game collection. There's two that he's been trying to get a hold of, and he hasn't really been able to, to get yet. Um, one is called Thunder and Lightning, and the other one is called Pinball Quest. So you see what the boxes look like for those. And um, so anyhow, I probably bought both of those games for like five to ten bucks a piece, you know, the, the cartridge. Um, today, to get a complete price, um, which is a used cartridge with the box and the original instructions, um, for Thunder and Lightning sells for $79.88. Now, if you want a new one with a new cartridge with the box and instructions, it's $320. Pinball Quest, again, I probably bought it for five to ten bucks. The complete price, the used cartridge in the box instructions, $38. A new one, $291.03. So you see why Wade has not been able to, to, to rebuild those two games into this uh, collection. But anyhow, sometimes we don't realize the value of things until they're gone. And I wish I, wish I still had that system <laughs> and all those games. But perhaps all of us have had or have something that we do not realize is valuable. And then you go and you watch Antiques Roadshow, right? And you're like, I have one of those. Or my mom or dad has one of those. I think it's in the attic somewhere. Or it's in the basement or the garage, you know. I'm going to have to dust it off. And then you watch um, American Picker, right? And you're like, oh my goodness. Like mine's in better condition than that one. I wonder how much I can get for that. I need to call them, right? And then other times we watch uh, maybe... Pawn Stars, right? And, and we go, uh, I, the ones that always make me laugh when, in that show, and I haven't watched a show in a long time, but um, the ones that always make me laugh are these people that come in with something, and they're like, it's, it's original. It's, it's so valuable, right? And like I, The person I bought it from said that it was original, and they spent way too much money on it. And then they go there, and, and you know, they, they call in their specialists and everything, and the specialist's like, no, it's a fake. And they argue with them, no, no, it's not fake. And, and, uh, or, or they like to find out what the value of it is, and then they say, well, how much do you want to sell it for? And they want to sell it for the retail value. And, you know, the owners are like, we can't buy it for the retail value because we won't make any money. And so those make me, always, those make me laugh a lot of times when they come in and do that. But um, how many of us have something that we know is uh, really valuable? I don't want you to raise your hand this morning because just keep it to yourself. I want you to think about it. I don't want other people to know that you have valuable things, okay? So just shh. Don't say anything today. But just be thinking about that, right? There's things out there that we don't even realize sometimes are really valuable. 
Or maybe we do know the value of it, and that's why we have it. We like to collect those things. So Pastor Mark uh, began the eighth Toledoth, which is the account of um, statement last week. It's the account of Isaac. We saw the conception and birth of Esau and Jacob. I guess it was two weeks ago. I'm sorry, I said, I said last week, but it was two weeks ago. We don't know exactly how much time passed between verses 26 and 27, uh, but some scholars believe it's been around 20 years. So just think about that. From two weeks ago when Mark ended with verse 26 to this week when we start with verse 27, approximately 20 years have passed. Esau and Jacob are young men at this point. We already know that God has chosen Jacob to carry on the Abrahamic covenant. And as we'll learn today, neither Esau nor Jacob deserve to carry on the covenant, but God's sovereign work continues whether or not we deserve it. Isn't that wonderful? His sovereign work continues whether we deserve it or not. And through this narrative, we're going to learn today our big idea that God uses us in spite of our weaknesses. He still accomplishes his sovereign plan when we fail, when we do things that are outside his plan and purpose and will. And so uh, that's what we're going to see today. And and so would you just bow your heads with me as we commit that to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. We recognize that we are chipped and cracked vessels, Lord God. We, uh, are, we give in to temptation time and time again, Lord God. We fail, and we, we cry out to you and ask for forgiveness, and we are grateful that your word tells us that when we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we thank you that you use us in spite of our weaknesses, that even though we fail you, there are times where you use us to share the gospel with someone. You use us to encourage someone else who's going through a difficult time, who has lost a loved one. Uh, and Lord, in those uh, times of our, our weakness, you still accomplish your sovereign plan, and we are so grateful for that today. And we ask that you would continue to do that um, in, in our weakness, Lord. Just use us so that you will be glorified, that you will be honored. And so, Lord, today we come to you and ask that you would open our hearts and minds through your Holy Spirit to your word, that you would speak powerfully through it, that, Lord God, your people would not hear my voice, but your voice only. I pray that I would only speak your words and not my own. And we just ask this in your precious son's name. Amen. So we're going to be looking at, at two points today, basically. First is occupation and then oath. Occupation we see in verses 27 and 28. And so would you look at those verses with me this morning in Genesis chapter 25. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we see here the occupation of the two boys, the twin boys. Esau was a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the open country. Now this particular occupation was not highly regarded by the biblical writers. It wasn't one of the traditional occupations of the, of the day. We're going to talk about that when we get to Jacob. But he, he was just, he, he was kind of uh, this guy who wanted to be out in the open country. Nothing wrong with that. And it wasn't against Jewish law to eat wild game, but the occupation of hunter was not considered favorable. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 9, we read about Nimrod, the son of Cush, who was a mighty hunter. And in Genesis chapter 27, verse 40, <clears throat> we read uh, about Esau. He'll be described as one who lives by the sword. So, um, yeah, again, th this particular occupation just not, wasn't considered favorable, even though it wasn't uh, wrong. And so as, 
he's this man of the open country. Esau just enjoyed roaming around instead of being tied down by the more traditional occupation of the day, which we'll talk about in just a minute. <clears throat> Perhaps he was just a restless man. He liked being out in the open country, kind of being alone, uh, being on his own by himself. Some of us can connect with that, can't we? There are times where, boy, when hunting season comes, this is great. I get to go sit in the woods and sleep. Or I get to go sit in the woods and pray. Um, or whatever it is that you do. But you enjoy that time just being alone, right? You enjoy the hunt. You enjoy the getting. You enjoy being out there in God's creation. I know that's, that's what it is for me. It's just a great time to sit and pray. It's a great time to see his creation and whether or not I get to catch anything or not. It's so neat to be out there and to see uh, his wildlife that he's created. And so perhaps that's what Esau is doing. He's enjoying that. And while Esau and Jacob were twins, it sounds like they were very different, which was what the Lord had said to Rebekah while she was pregnant with them in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. Even after their birth, there were marked differences in their appearance. Esau was red and hairy. And so we just assume that Jacob was not since Esau's appearance was noted by the author. You know, if, if he, or Jacob was the same way, you would say, well, they both came out red and hairy. Well, that's not the case. It was like Esau came out red and hairy. And so uh, Jacob must not have come out that way. And so we see that their appearance is, is different. Then we, we see here that, that Jacob is a quiet man. It's better translated civilized or fine. The basic idea of the Hebrew root word tim is to be complete, finished, perfect, it probably denotes Jacob as being well-cultured or civilized. He just wasn't this guy who was out in the, in the country, you know, uh, growing this big, well, maybe he had a beard. I don't know. <laughs> probably they all did. But, you know, he, he was well-kept, whatever the case may be. He didn't look like he was a wild man out, uh, a man of the country or the open country. It can also be translated wholesome, and uh, normally within the Old Testament it's been, has the meaning of innocence or moral integrity or blameless. And this meaning's found in Job, of Job, talking about Job. And so the word translated, as Walton says, quiet, is elsewhere used as an attribute for someone with high moral character. It's most often parallel to the adjective yasar, which means upright. Now, it may be hard for us to see this meaning being true as the narrative continues and we see the cunning way in which Jacob obtains the birthright and eventually the blessing of Isaac. And then how, uh, you know, he, he deceives Laban as well um, to build his herds and flock. But we'll see that God uh, does a transformational work in Jacob's life as he continues to grow and mature as, a, as an individual into God's covenant carrier. And you see, it goes back to our big idea that God uses us in spite of our weaknesses. God had a purpose and a plan for Jacob. He was to be the covenant carrier. And he's like, in spite of Jacob's weaknesses, he's still the man. He's still the guy through which the covenant is going to continue. Where, uh, you know, when he's talking about Abraham being blessed and all the nations are going to be blessed because of Abraham and, and Abraham's descendants are going to be blessed, Jacob is receiving that blessing even though he doesn't deserve it, even though he's not worthy of it. Even in his weakness, God's still using him. That's great news for us today, isn't it? <laughs> God will use us in spite of our weaknesses, whether we deserve it or not, whether we're worthy. And so I appreciate that, those words today, that we can still be used of God. Now, where it says, when it talks about him staying among the tents, uh, Jacob has the more traditional occupation of animal hus husbandry, 
He was a shepherd. So that's what it means when he's saying among the tents. It just means that he's out with the other shepherds, um, not necessarily with his parents, where they're at, but he's out in, in, in the fields, and he's staying in those tents. So he's just staying close to where the flock is and the herds are at. He's not out in the open country. That's what he's talking about, staying among the tents. Esau and Jacob took very different occupational paths, which may have played a role in their parents' preferences, as we see in uh, verse 28. Now, there's an important note I want you to understand before we talk about this whole section. While it appears that Isaac and Rebekah have their favorites, the word love here represents a personal preference and not a lack of genuine love for both sons. Isaac and Rebekah love both of their sons, but they each have a personal preference for a different son. So I don't, want us to, I don't want you to look at this today and then say, oh, well, uh, you know, uh, Isaac just hated Jacob. That's not the case. He loved him. It was, he was his son, but he had a preference for Esau. Rebekah didn't hate Esau. She had a personal preference for Jacob. And so... Uh, they were just taking care of those two sons. Isaac, we're kind of given a reason why Isaac preferred Esau, and it was because he had a taste for wild game. <clears throat> and this, is, uh, this probably did not mean that he hated beef or mutton or goat, because those were uh, the animals that they were taking care of at this point. <clears throat> they had flocks and herds of those. Perhaps he liked to mix it up sometimes. How many of us can connect with Isaac? How many of you like wild game, right? Not just a traditional steak or pork chop or chicken or turkey or you know we like to mix it up sometimes i like a good steak i enjoy chicken turkey ham seafood but i also am, am adventurous when it comes to trying new things i like venison bison elk and other exotic meats see if you've tried any of these i've tried shark frog legs octopus bear snake alligator turtle Grasshoppers, they taste like grass, by the way. They're dried and they taste like grass. Yeah, so I'm, I'm adventurous when it comes to eating. Man, I love to try these new things. I've said I'll try anything at least once. <laughs> there was only one thing that I've tried in the past that I didn't like, and it was because it came out of a can instead of having someone else make it uh, from scratch. It was menudo. Is it pig's, pig intestines or something like that? Pig's intestines. Anyhow, it was not good out of a can, trust me. Don't ever try it. <laughs> but anyhow, so a lot of us can connect because we like those exotic meats as well. We like to mix things up. So Isaac prefers Esau while Rebekah prefers Jacob. Now, we're not given here in this passage of Scripture a reason why Rebekah prefers Jacob over Esau, but perhaps... Perhaps her preference for Jacob is because of the revelation she received from the Lord concerning both boys and how Esau would serve Jacob. Maybe she just realized that Jacob was the chosen covenant carrier. And so she just preferred him over Esau. Wolke says this, Isaac's love is based on natural senses, Rebekah's on divine choice and enduring qualities. The two sons' occupation helps us understand what's happening in the second part of this passage of Scripture. And this is the second point this morning, it's oath. And I have a bunch of S words uh, for the subheadings for this particular point. And you'll see what they are in just a moment. But let's look at those verses, 29 to 34, and see what God's word tells us today. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, uh, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. 
That's why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentils too. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. So the first uh, sub-point here is setting. We see it in verses 29 and 30. The word once is there, and it encompasses a broad range, so we don't have any idea when this uh, uh, took place. My guess is that the, uh, it was while Jacob and Esau were still young men. But it's, you know, it's kind of like that idea of once upon a time, right? <laughs> that we hear in these uh, fairy tales and things like that. Once upon a time. So he's just saying once here, so we don't have no idea of what the time frame is. Jacob was, he, we do know what was going on. Jacob was cooking some stew. Esau had been out hunting in the open country. He obviously hadn't caught any wild game. If he had, he probably would have prepared it himself. And the reason I say that is because what we see in Genesis chapter 27, verse 31, we see Esau prepared the wild game that he had caught for his father Isaac in preparation for receiving the blessing. If you remember the story, and we'll get to it in a couple of weeks, where Isaac's like, hey, would you go out and catch some wild game and prepare it the way that I like, and then when you bring it in, I'll, you know, we're going to talk about the blessing and everything. <clears throat> and so he does, and we know that that's when Rebecca and Jacob kind of do some deceptive things to, uh, um, to steal the blessing. And then he comes back in, but it says that he prepared this wild game for his father, and then he brings it to his father, and his father says, who are you? And he's like, well, I'm Esau. Well, then who was that guy that was here just before you? <clears throat> And then you heard Teresa read this morning that Esau, with tears, is upset that there's no blessing left for him. So if he had caught something while he was out in the, wild, or in the open country, he would have prepared it himself. Both Jacob and Esau knew how to cook. Esau was really hungry after hunting in the open country. Boy, he's just been out there perhaps a couple of days. We don't even know the time frame. But he says, quick, let me have some of that stew. Esau is perhaps feeling weak or sick from hunger and needs nourishment. Have you ever experienced that? I did just a couple of weekends ago. I was working with Seth. Uh, we were working on a project to go together over at his house, and we just didn't want to stop working. We wanted to get it done, so we just kept going and going and going, and we missed a meal, and we kept going, and finally I just said to him, you know what? I am so weak that I need to go <laughs> put some food in my body. I need some fuel so that we can keep working. So we did. We took a break for maybe 15 minutes, went in and got something to eat, and we came back out, and I was refreshed. I was nourished, and we were able to continue working on the project. Perhaps you've experienced that too, and, and that's, I think, what, Jay, or what Esau is experiencing here. Um, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Matthews, in his commentary, says it this way. Quick, let me have, translates the root la'at, which is a hapax legomenon, which is, that's a fancy Latin word for this phrase only appears here, nowhere else in Scripture. This is it. This is once and done that appears only once, meaning something like devour, or that is gulp down. This is how hungry he is. He's like, we're not, no etiquette here. No table etiquette. I need to gulp down some of that red stew. So Esau's not really aware of what Jacob has been cooking. In the Hebrew, Esau is actually saying, quick, let me gulp down some of that red stuff, this red stuff. He's just pointing at the pot. He's like, let me have some of that. Only later do we find out what the contents of the red stuff is. Esau is famished, and in that state, he is impulsive. He's not thinking clearly. And that's, that's to Jacob's benefit. We have the parent, 
a parenthetical note about why Esau is also called Edom. Edom means red. We know that when he uh, when Esau was born, he was identified in two ways, red and hairy all over. Now he's begging for some of that red stuff. I'm guessing red might be his favorite color, right? They call him Edom. Esau asked Jacob for some of the red stew he had prepared, and Jacob sees an opportunity to get something he wants that's of value to him. We see then the second S word is selling, verses 31 and 32. Jacob takes advantage of Esau's extreme hunger by asking him to sell his birthright before he'll give him anything uh, to eat. Any of that reds too. So what's the significance then of this birthright? It's obvious, it obviously includes a double portion of the father's inheritance or estate. So the material side of it, the possession side of it, is this uh, double uh, uh, portion. So for Esau, that would mean two-thirds of Isaac's estate. For the patriarchs, the birthright not only included material possessions, but also the covenant blessings of Jehovah. So that's important. It's a spiritual uh, blessing as well. Jacob understood that the birthright included material possessions and leadership responsibilities, both physically and spiritually. He was going to have to take care of the rest of the family for the rest of his life. But he was also going to need to lead them spiritually. He was willing to accept those responsibilities. Now, Jacob's desire to have the birthright was not necessarily wrong, but the way in which he sought to obtain the birthright was wrong. So we don't know if Jacob knew about the divine revelation given to his mother prior to his birth, that the older twin would serve the younger twin. My guess is that he probably didn't know. If he knew about this, uh, he could uh, have waited patiently on the Lord's timing for it to be fulfilled. Instead, he's racing ahead of what God is doing. That's why I think that he doesn't know about that divine revelation that Rebecca received. Esau did not see the value of the birthright. He was more interested in satisfying his hunger than thinking about the spiritual value of the birthright. One commentator says, There is proof enough that he knew he was uh, giving away, along with the birthright blessings, which, because they were not of a material but of a spiritual nature, had no particular value in his estimation. And the words that he... Uh, the, the, and the words he made use of, Behold, I'm going to die to meet death... And what is the birthright to me? The only thing of value to him was the sensual enjoyment of the present, the spiritual blessings of the future his carnal mind was unable to estimate. He's like, it doesn't matter. I'm so hungry. He was so impulsive at that point. And then we see the passage that Teresa read for you this morning, Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to start at verse 14. She read verses 16 and 17. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up uh, to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is uh, sexually immoral or is, a, uh, or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears." And so that leads us to our first principle today. And it comes from Gangle and Bramer's commentary. Humans are tempted to get their material and spiritual priorities out of order. In our humanists, that's not hard to do, is it? Esau definitely put his material priority of hunger ahead of the spiritual priority of his birthright. And we have all probably given in to the temptation to get our material, physical, social priorities ahead of our spiritual priorities. And it's so simple to do. It's just so simple. 
We wake up thinking about everything we have to get done today and neglect to spend time with the Lord. I did that just this week. It's a busy week as we're preparing to go on vacation. And, and uh, I got up one morning and I did my devotions, read God's word, but I didn't take, take time to pray and go through my prayer list. I'm like, oh, I got to walk the dog and I got to get this done. I got to do that and I got to get over to the office and I got to do this. And, and I was like, man, like as I was preparing all of this, I'm realizing I'm at fault. And so the next couple of mornings, I took the time to not just read God's word, but to pray, to be in communion with him. So it's so simple to do. It's so simple to just get so busy, get so caught up in what we're doing. We work all day and feel exhausted at the end of the day, so we decide to skip Wednesday evening church. Boy, prayer time is so important. When we're getting together, we're crying out to God. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer is what's going to move heaven and earth. It's going to transform people's lives. And I can't tell you how many times people have come on a Wednesday night and they're like, oh, I'm just, I was so tired and I thought about not coming. And then after the service is done, they're like, I'm so glad that I came. I'm refreshed. We either work really hard on projects around the house on Saturday or we spend all day recreating and sleep through our alarm on Sunday morning or decide Saturday night that we'll skip church because of how hard we worked. You know, preparation for Sunday morning happens Saturday night. We save for a new car or a computer, a new game console, a cell phone, appliances, a vacation, but we neglect to give to the Lord through tithes and offerings. You see, we don't trust God to supply our needs. This is simple to get the material ahead of the spiritual. We try to work out a problem in our own strength without going to God first in prayer. Our desire to be in a relationship is so strong that we neglect to ask the Lord to guide and direct us to the right person. We can become so desperate that we start looking in the wrong places and eventually compromise our standards and beliefs in order to be in a relationship with someone else. And we neglect to talk to God about it. Like, God, who do you have for me? Will you guide and direct me to that person? This just takes us to Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. It's so important. It says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We don't have to worry about the material as long as we're taking care of the spiritual. That's so important that we focus upon that first. So maybe you're ready for this next step today. It's the first one. It says, seek God's kingdom first the spiritual priorities, instead of the things of this world, which are the material priorities. God's going to take care of those. He's going to guide and direct us. And so Jacob manipulates Esau to get his birthright, even though he could have just waited on God's timing. Esau does not care about his birthright, but Jacob wants to make the transaction official and binding. He doesn't want Esau to be able to come back and say, I didn't say that. What are you talking about, Jacob? That's a lie. I never said that you could have the birthright for a bowl of stew and some bread. So he's like, no. He presses him. He says, I need you to swear it on oath. And that's the third point, swearing, verse 33. Jacob presses Esau to make it official by swearing an oath. Esau did just that. He swore on oath that the birthright of the firstborn was now Jacob's. And with the transaction complete, we see the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. There it happened. There's the transaction, the fulfillment of the divine revelation 
to Rebekah. Jacob now releases the stew for Esau to eat. That's the fourth point, serving the beginning of verse 34. Esau receives bread and lentil stew in exchange for his birthright. It, that wasn't a good deal, by the way. Not a good deal. He got ripped off there. <laughs> I can just imagine Jacob handing over the bread and stew with a smile of satisfaction on his face. I finally got what I wanted. Right? And then the fifth point is separating the second part of verse 34. Esau finished his meal and then promptly gets up and leaves. He just doesn't even care. And then the final note from the author tells us that Esau despised his birthright. He holds his birthright in contempt. Esau treated his birthright with irreverence and rejection. When we think about this contempt, I think about that old concept of being in contempt of court. When someone is found in contempt of court, it's because... They have not showed the proper respect to the judge and the jurors. They've been disrespectful. That's what, J, or that's what Esau has done here. He did not show the Lord the proper respect he deserved for allowing him to be born first. And Matthew says, by this incident, the author implies that Esau's de- decision regarding his religious heritage disqualifies him to succeed his father. He wasn't worthy. He didn't deserve to be the covenant carrier. How does this apply to us today? I see two more principles. God, it goes back to our big ideas, the first one. God uses us in spite of our weaknesses. <clears throat> Waltke says this, Jacob is distinguished from Esau by his faith in the promises and blessings of God. He wrongly schemes against his brother because he correctly believes that the birthright um, in line in the line of Abraham and Isaac, holds tremendous blessing and promise. Despite all of his weaknesses, Jacob lives within the vision of faith. He understood the value of the birthright and the blessing, even though he went about it the wrong way. The same is true for us also. I know my weaknesses, and so does the Lord and Satan. And Satan tempts me, tempts me in my areas of weakness, the Lord uses me in spite of my weaknesses. Isn't that, it's hard to wrap our heads around that this morning. Like Satan knows him and he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tempt him there. I'm going to try to trip him up. And, and when we do trip up, God says, I'm still going to use you. But don't forget to repent. Don't forget to confess. The same is true for every one of us. Satan tempts us and the Lord uses us in spite of our weaknesses. Too often we forget this principle. When we fail and give in to temptation, we feel like God cannot or will not use us. Isn't that how we normally feel? We feel really down. And we're like, God, oh, God can't use me. I, I can't serve at church anymore. No, he wants us to repent and confess and continue to serve. When we allow this lie from Satan to keep us from serving the Lord, um, um, I should say we allow that to happen. To do what the Lord has called us to do, we allow Satan's lie to keep us from doing that. But 1 John 1, 9, I mentioned earlier, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and and purify us from all unrighteousness. The Lord provides forgiveness through confession so we can continue to be useful for him. So maybe you're ready for that second next step today, and it's to recognize that God can still use me in spite of my weaknesses when I confess my sins to him. He wants to continue to use you. He needs to continue to use you. Don't let Satan's lie keep you from serving the Lord. And here's the uh, third principle. Um, God is sovereign, so he will accomplish his plans and purposes for us. And so God's sovereignty outweighs our failures and our flaws. 
Thank you, Lord. <laughs> His sovereignty overrules our failures and our flaws. We have some biblical background for this. Romans chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as, is, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul is quoting Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. This is what it says. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountain into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. So God had chosen Jacob to be the covenant carrier prior to his birth. He already knew that Jacob would manipulate and take advantage of Esau in order to get his birthright. He already knew that Rebekah and Jacob would conspire together so that Jacob would also get Isaac's blessing. He already knew how Jacob would deceive Laban to, in order to get his own to grow his own uh, herds and flocks. He already knew that Esau would hold in contempt his birthright and not value it. And while it seems like neither Jacob nor Esau were worthy or deserved to be the covenant carrier, God's sovereignty outweighed Jacob's failures and flaws. You see, because God's in control. God is all-powerful. He's going to accomplish his plans and purposes in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our flaws and our failures. God knew that Jacob would eventually mature in his faith and be able to handle the spiritual responsibilities of the covenant carrier, and we see that happen. God's sovereignty works the same in, way in our lives. We may look at ourselves and think, I'm not deserving of God's new covenant through Jesus Christ. And we'd be right in thinking that. We're not worthy. We're not deserving of it because none of us are worthy of salvation apart from the grace and mercy of God. In his sovereignty, God knew we would need a savior. So he sent Jesus from heaven to earth to take our punishment for sin. He showed his great love through sending his son. So we have this incredible fact that God still can use us in spite of our fails and flaws and failures. Maybe you're going through the heartache of a wayward child or spouse right now. In the midst of that, it's hard to see how God's sovereignty is at work but it is. We may know the things that they're doing and that they feel like they do not deserve God's forgiveness or love, but I want you to hold on to hope today because God's sovereignty far outweighs their failures and their flaws. God is able to restore and transform what we think is lost. I've seen it time and time again. How wayward children come back to the Lord simply because God's word does not return void. They know the truth. They know what they're supposed to do. And the Holy Spirit does that work in their hearts and minds and draws them back to himself. He can use that wayward child to bring others to Jesus for his glory because the things that they've gone through, they can now connect with others that are struggling with the same things. He can take a deceiving, lying person and transform them into an honest, truth-telling follower of Jesus. Aren't you glad? We can hold on to hope today because of that. This third next step might be for you today, and that's to trust in the sovereignty of God for myself and my family. As we review just a couple of questions, do you need to realign your spiritual material priorities? If you do, tell the Lord that today. Just express that to him. Say, God, I've allowed this material thing to have a higher priority than my spiritual life with you. 
Do you need to recognize that God can still use you in spite of your weaknesses? Confess those weaknesses to him today. Just confess. Agree with him about those weaknesses. He says he's faithful and just. He'll forgive us those sins and he'll purify us. Do you need to trust in the sovereignty of God for yourself or a family member? Do that today. As a body of believers, we need to help hold each other accountable to these next steps. We need to share with one another how we need to be held accountable. We need others to help in this process. As we conclude today, I just want to share this poem with you from uh, Jeannie Steg. It's called Twins. Esau said, I'm feeling faint. Ah, said Jacob, no, you ain't. Papa's blessing, Esau cried, is mine by rights, but I'll have died. Of hunger first, for pity's sake, my birthright for your lentils, Jake. Your birthright, Jacob murmured, sold. Dig in before the stuff gets cold. That's what happened, right? <laughs> and so, again, I want to encourage you today. We need to see the value in our birthright through Jesus Christ. We, we are transformed. We're made new because of that. We can hold on to that hope today. We don't have to, to be concerned about whether or not our weaknesses are going to make us um, unusable. God says, hey, confess those sins. I want to still use you in spite of those weaknesses. And he, he plans to do that because he's a sovereign God who's all-powerful. And we can rejoice in that fact today. As the worship team comes, would you just bow your heads with me as we close in prayer? Lord, we just come to you today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that um, even in our weaknesses, when we're not worthy, when we're not uh, deserving of your grace and mercy, it's still available to us. We are so grateful for that today. Lord, we pray that, uh, that we wouldn't allow Satan's lies uh, to keep us from pursuing the spiritual over the material. Would you do the work now by your Holy Spirit in each heart and mind? We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.